Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lip. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. Breaking news. Michael Cohen is a liar. (laughs) (laughs) And a bad lawyer. And a bad lawyer. He's a bad, bad bad man. Nicky lied. He's not a liar. Oh no. He made that distinction many times. I lied. I'm not a liar. I did bad things. I'm not a bad man. Turns out he loves his children too. He loves his children. Yeah. 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 Touching. Touching. (laughs) Not sure who the hell that touched, but whatever. (laughs) On that note, welcome back guys. Uh, Barstool Politics. I am your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. And we have senior legal analyst, Professor Tom Cavanaugh with us again to go over this uh, this cavalcade of, uh, of shit that we witnessed today. <laughs> oh my God. Hi, Tom. Thanks for coming back. It's always my pleasure. <laughs> Love to be here. Uh, before we get started, all the fun stuff. Uh, if you guys have questions, comments, beer suggestions, things you want us to talk about, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Beers that we try you can find on Untapped on iOS and Android. Uh, look for Barstool Politics uh, and all of our reviews through there. The podcast, uh, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. And uh, as you guys know, and new listeners are about to find out, uh, we are partnered with Predicted, which is a real money political prediction market, uh, pretty much a stock market for politics, where you can buy and sell shares in future uh, political events. Um, a lot of fun. We use it to kind of get the pulse of what people are thinking on certain things, uh, where they're putting their money. Um, and we try and profit off of that. And you should try that, too, because what's great for our listeners is that if you open up a new account with Predicted, you'll receive up to a $20 match on your first deposit. So, for example, if you open up a $20 account, uh, Predictit will match that $20, giving you $40 to use on Predictit, uh, which is great. Um, so just use the promo link, predictit.org slash promo slash BarstoolPaul20, and, uh, and get some free money to, to check that out. I think you're getting so good at that. I know. It just, it just flows. It's, it's very impressive. I've started to dream it, which is probably <laughs> a bad thing, but I appreciate the fact that I can have that dream. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. It's all. It's, we were so worried that there was going to be nothing to talk about, and there's so much to talk about today. And it's all breaking news. Yeah, because it just happened. I think so. As we're taping, Cohen is still probably testifying, right? I'm yes, guessing he's sweatily. He just wrapped up. He, he just, just wrapped, wrapped up. up. So yeah. he can go get a sandwich now. You know, good mm-hmm. for yeah. him. And I, <laughs> I heard something was going on in Vietnam too. I'm not sure what that's about. We'll it's probably just glance over. Yeah, that. we could. We could. All right. So, <laughs> yeah. So it's a slow news day, right? Uh, oh, so we've got two blockbuster stories to break down first. Michael Cohen, President Trump's former personal lawyer and fixer. Uh, He testified today before Congress. Cohen, who once said he would take a bullet for the president, is now playing the role of rat and appeared determined to do whatever he can to bring down the president. Some of the highlights included Cohen alleging that Trump knew in advance of the WikiLeaks document dump 
that he was deeply and personally involved in the scheme to pay off an adult film actress. And Cohen suggesting that federal prosecutors are investigating unspecified criminal allegations involving the president that have not yet been made public. While all of this was playing out, President Trump was hanging out in Vietnam discussing denuclearization with North Korea's leader, Kim Jong-un. So much, Nick. So much to break down. So let's jump right in. Tom, you're a lawyer. Watching this this lawyer on TV today, uh, what's your sense of Michael Cohen as a lawyer? Cohen's the most ghastly person in American public <laughs> life today. But before we get to the bad news, we have to have uh, two minutes of good news. Mm-hmm. My beloved Supreme Court has been at work, as yes. it always does. Uh, it does well. Tim's won. The last time I was we here, talked we talked about, about yeah. civil forfeiture. Uh, no standard, but... Uh, the states are hysterical. Uh, that is to say, uh, state attorneys general are all after the money again. California, it turns out, made $42 million in what? civil forfeiture just in 2017. So we're going to dial that back. Tim's car is apparently no longer drivable after all of these years, but wow. uh, he won, 9-0. Uh, we mentioned wow. a case earlier, Madison. This is the guy with dementia that faced the death penalty. Uh, he sort of won which is to say there's going to be further proceedings to decide whether or not he knows that he's being executed. If it turns out he does, then he will be. If it turns out he doesn't, then he won't. So the Eighth Amendment protects you from being executed if you don't know you're being executed. Uh, Third, and and maybe we'll come to this the next time, is that the court gave cert on the census question relative to citizenship. It's a really, really big deal, and it's going to affect the next election. So we tease that one. Last, today was oral argument on the Peace Cross case. Mm -hmm. This is the American Legion uh, cross that is an enormous thing in the middle of uh, a public thoroughfare. People were lined up 36 hours in advance to hear this oral argument. Hmm. Really? So the courtroom was packed. Uh, And I think the reason is people think this might be the time when the court gives us a new test. So instead of that gobbledygook that is the lemon test, maybe a straightforward is government coercing religious belief test. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are, including me, really hopeful for. Uh, Last thing, I thought to just say a word about Clarence Thomas, New York Times, and uh, what was going on with that. This is a story we talked about last yeah. week. Yeah. yeah, right. I'm a listener, too. Yeah. So, yeah. But I, I, unlike the, all the other listeners, I get a chance to respond after I hear you people. So let me say this. Uh, this is a really interesting thing. Uh, what he did was to issue a written uh, opinion concurring with the denial of cert in a case involving Bill Cosby and one of his accusers. She sued, uh, alleging uh, that she'd been defamed. Uh, in a particular libel, you know, written uh, defamation. And I, I, what I wanted to say, having, having raised Trump in this context, is, A, this is not at all uncommon. Uh, justices frequently will use uh, uh, concurring cert denials or cert grants to talk about their position on a thing. And one came immediately to mind as I was listening to last week's podcast, and that was Justice Stevens, who was profoundly opposed to the death penalty and frequently used cert denials when somebody was going to be executed to say, uh, I'm opposed to this, the Eighth Amendment uh, ought to be interpreted to prohibit the death penalty given the the way we do it in this country, numbers-wise and that sort of thing. So I I don't think there's a Trump connection. Uh, I know that's not good for podcast listening because it doesn't have a conspiracy theory, but I think Don't what, worry, we'll what cut Thomas that out. was doing here <laughs> uh, was sort of reinforcing an originalist view of the way we ought to think about defamation because there's nothing about defamation law until New York Times, which is a 
mid-60s case that uh, speaks to a malice standard. And he doesn't think there should be one unless Congress, go back to a theme we've talked about many times, unless Congress produces one. So uh, yeah. a quick update. And now yeah. my analogy of the appearance, because I'm now thinking I'm going to have an analogy every time, Sammy Sosa <laughs> having been the last one. So today's, having watched the Cohen hearings, is this. Republicans and Democrats are to governance and American public policy what two bald men are when they fight for a comb. <laughs> <laughs> Concerned about all the wrong things. Yeah. <laughs> Only kind of a joke. All right, Cohen. Um, a couple things struck me. Uh, one is the almost unimaginable degree to which this guy, who held a law license until he learned yesterday by reading the newspaper that he's been disbarred, abused his clients. Uh, he conceded during the hearing he'd more than a hundred times audiotaped his own clients. He offered those tapes uh, uh, to Congress. Uh, he commingled funds. Um, some of the lawyers uh, or some of the listeners are lawyers and they're going to recognize if there are hot button issues in the practice of law, the attorney-client privilege and treating client money uh, ethically are at the top of the list. And uh, while I don't want to speak to whether or not I believe him or not, I, what I would say is uh, the degree to which he abused his position as an attorney is just simply impossible to overstate. Um, so I guess that's my first thought. Uh, my second is uh, it was really interesting to see uh, a reversal here. This was the Kavanaugh hearings, but with the different sides taking the same approach to a hostile witness. So limited topics, late data dump, I'm sorry, late document dump, that kind of thing. Um, I, I'm, I'm troubled by the fact that these things have become more partisan uh, than they are investigatory. Uh, and how do we resist just a couple of little tidbits? It turns out that Trump running for president was his idea. Uh, this is one of his mm -hmm. nuggets. Um, he wants a book or a movie deal, and oh I won't God. say that he won't. Uh, and then we had this great phrase, catch and kill, mm -hmm. which <laughs> I'm, maybe we could talk about that one for a minute because it's really horrible. Uh, his allegations, though, at the end of the day, and maybe this is, I'll just stop here and, and look forward to hearing what all you think. The documents that he produced do not speak for themselves. That is to say, absent his corroborating testimony and description of them, uh, it appears as though the documents he's produced are not in and of themselves incriminating. They need him to describe what they are, why they matter, and that there was criminal behavior associated with them. So his credibility really is important, and, and I think the tease before this was he's got documents that will support everything he says. Theoretically, they do, but not on their face. They require his testimony. And I was, I was really struck by that. By, so. by that, do you, can you give an example? Like the check that he, uh, the, mm -hmm. the piece of evidence that I think of, he presented a check yeah. that Donald Trump had written him for, I think, $35,000 mm -hmm. that Donald Trump had signed mm -hmm. after he was in office, I guess after he was president, mm -hmm. that is supposedly repayment for the, uh, the um, Stormy, Stormy Daniels. Stormy Daniels, yeah. Stormy yeah. Daniels yes. Um, I said stormy waters. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, they are. Um, so that what you're saying is that that check in and of itself, it fits into this story, but without the story around it, it's just a check. Right. Correct. And, and my recollection is the follow up question that came at some point was, well, how do we know that wasn't just for legal fees? Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and, you know, uh, he had an answer for that. I'm not sure it was persuasive or not, but the check doesn't say in the memo line, uh, repayment for Stormy Daniels, exactly. hush money, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, is, it, is it troubling circumstantial evidence? I think it is. Um, is it authentic, uh, on its face, incriminating evidence? It is not. His credibility is, is really kind of fascinating because he is such a problematic figure. I, w- I, f- I found myself thinking back, I don't know, was it a year ago that Trump was defending him, you know, when they raided his house? And to go full circle from that point, he's, yeah, it, I can understand why Mueller or anybody in Southern District of New York doesn't want anything to do with him if it rests on the credibility of his, his testimony. Mm-hmm. I mean, he could be useful, he can give you background, but I would not want... Uh, my case to rely on somebody like that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, that, to me, that's the story of, of of the day. Is how do you sort through that? Yeah. Because he he's not. I mean, he's been convicted of or pled guilty yes. to lying to Congress. So, I mean, that and that is uh, that that's that's not something to be ignored. But it does that in and of itself doesn't mean that what he's saying today is a lie right and the part that was weird to me is that i saw like on the republican side right i saw this relentless attack on his character or his credibility which makes sense if you were a defense attorney right it seems like that makes sense if you're trying to defend donald trump or whatever but what i didn't see and you kind of taught you kind of poked at this a little bit tom is that i didn't it didn't seem to me that there were there were some people today uh, who were who were questioning him, but it didn't seem that many of them were actually trying to get at the truth, the, the or at what happened. So I, when I looked at the the Republicans in particular who were questioning um, uh, Cohen, they were going after this issue of credibility. You're a liar. You're a proven liar. You just want to do this for a book deal. But they didn't actually get at whether or not, you know, is, is there a defense of Trump? Is, if this is true, is it is it illegal? And they weren't actually trying to get at whether this actually was true. They weren't probing the actual facts that he was bringing up. They weren't challenging, you know, like you were saying, Tom, this is a check, but could it have been for something else? Can you provide evidence that this is actually what it was for? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that wasn't what that never happened. Um, and so. Uh, that's the part that I would have liked to have seen, and it, it, it does muddy the waters. The fact that he, he he doesn't have credibility, but oftentimes in court, people who are criminals, right, testify, and and this is not even a court session, but mm-hmm. no one is perfect, right? So everyone who you bring up to testify is going to have issues. So I would have liked to have seen more attempts to sort out, you know, okay, we have reasons to doubt you. Let's figure out if what you're saying is actually true, as opposed mm-hmm. to just dis- discarding everything. Because you lied once before. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I I agree. I personally would have liked to have seen more of that. Having watched the majority of it, uh, I mean, I'm I'm kind of with Tom in this situation. I think that the evidence that he has is circumstantial and extremely superficial. Uh, and there's there's I, I think significant power in suggesting that he is um, he's not credible considering his his past dealings and then the the testimony that he was giving was pretty much it was hearsay and circumstantial I saw Don Jr. go behind his desk which which was out of character for him and go up to his dad and say that the meeting is set I don't know you know I assumed it was about you know the the Russia Moscow meeting um, 
you know, there was a call from Roger Stone where there was something about WikiLeaks or something. And he said, well, wouldn't that be great about, you know, the DNC uh, email dump? And it was just this constant thing of he brought up the racism thing, all these things that were completely unfounded and were it was it was a character assassination on both ends at this point going or coming and going. And when you get down to there just wasn't a lot of substance to anything he was saying on top of him not being credible. Um, and then there's gaps in the timeline and there's again the evidence that he did present there's no specifics on um, what it was related to uh, under what circumstances it was created um, it was just it was bizarre like it just, and I have, I have pages of notes that I wrote <laughs> and then don't it just didn't look through again um, it, it, the only thing that I, I I thought was really interesting and he kept going back to the the, the DNC um, WikiLeaks email dump and specifically saying it was the one one piece of uh, um, testimony where he said it was specifically July uh, when this evidence was uh, or when they heard about it. Which is important because that was prior to the, the DNC convention. It was right. The timing, the sequencing matters there. Right. Yeah. But there was a, a member of um, uh, a Republican who specifically stated uh, Julian Assange stated a month prior to that and it was published in the guardian that this information was going to be leaked prior to the democratic convention so the information was already out there there were no specifics of it and he specifically said he did not know the circumstances of how the information was obtained and he specifically said he wouldn't use the term collusion on top of the fact of everything else that was said in this thing uh, Tom was talking about the topics that could be discussed. Russia was not supposed to be on the docket until this morning. The list of topics that were supposed to be there, give me a second. Uh, the president's debt, uh, compliance with financial disclosures, campaign finance, dealings with the IRX and tax, uh, tax law, and the perspective on Trump's business dealings, which were not supposed to lead into Russia necessarily. But because... You know, there could have been a connection there between the two or some element of those topics. We have to talk about it now. But that was not brought up until this morning. The WikiLeaks thing is interesting to me because, you know, we've said Cohen is an incredible witness. Uh, you know, he, he relayed this idea that he was in the room when Trump and, and uh, Roger Stone have a conversation. Now, Roger Stone apparently today, in violation of his court order, was right, denying that this happened, lying. right? I mean, he's so, so, so Trump is has been a proven liar on issues. Roger Stone, I think, is a, probably a liar on a lot of issues. And then, then... What's that? Probably. <laughs> probably. And then Cohen. So you've got... Uh, which of the liars is lying the most? It's, it's just all liars. <laughs> They're all liars. Well, the, something had to happen, right? You know? <laughs> so this is... I, so I want to I, I agree with some of the stuff you've said, Nick, and then maybe disagree a small amount. And then maybe, Tom, you can give me your opinion as an attorney on this. So I agree with a number of the things that you said, Nick, which is that, like, the racist stuff, like, is, is salacious, but I don't know that it's relevant to what the testimony was about. So mm -hmm. the fact that he yeah. included that in his opening statement, and I, I don't know. I mean, it, it doesn't seem to add a whole lot other than... Uh, you know, his Donald Trump's views on race have been pretty out in the open, right? So this statement doesn't necessarily do much in that. And, it, and it's not really Cohen doesn't provide clarity to all of this. Right. Right. <laughs> right. The um, and I do think you're right as well. It would have been interesting to see more focus on some of the actual financial stuff, which is, you know, what Cohen has been charged with the, you know, the campaign finance stuff. 
I do think it crosses over to Russia in in some ways when you get into the Trump Tower uh, discussions. And there was mm. interesting stuff there in which I think Cohen talked about how what Don Jr. and Ivanka were both uh, included, like were involved in that, were aware of the ongoing discussions that the, you know, the the Trump campaign um, was lying when they said that uh, negotiations over Trump Tower in Moscow had ended before the uh, you know, whatever the date it was. So I think there's there's stuff in there that that um, matters. I And mm -hmm. I do think that, uh, like you said, the WikiLeaks thing, Bill, I think is interesting because if he what the part that's interesting there is is the assertion he is openly testifying that Trump knew mm -hmm. about this before it happened, which that is new information in the public sphere, which as, Trump as, has denied even recently that there was if, even any conversation about it. Right. Um, yeah. The part that I come back to, though, is and this is where I'm interested in Tom's take on this or everybody's take on this um, is you're right, Bill. They're all liars. Right. <laughs> but it seems like this testimony can't be taken in a vacuum. It's not occurring in a vacuum. So the thing that I thought is that this guy is not particularly credible. But as I sat there listening to him talk about stuff, it his testimony made sense in the context of a lot of other stuff that we know right so if you're testing you know does this make it, it, it i don't know in my imagine if i'm on a jury trying to decide stuff it, it's not just that this guy said something happened it's he said it happened and does that line up with the other evidence that i've seen does it line up with other people's stories does it line up with you know other does, does it make sense in the context of the bigger picture and that's what i kept coming around to and i kept coming around to i don't like michael Cohen. I don't think he's a good person. I don't think that he's, uh, you know, an honest person. But the stuff he's saying today makes sense. It lines up with the sort of broader picture that has that has sort of come somewhat into focus over the last two years. Is that the wrong lens to take to this? Real quick before we get into that. One thing I'll say about that is I, I think that there is some evidence that that there is a, a connection between these events. Um, what I kept seeing throughout the day was that when it got down to the nitty-gritty of specific evidence or timelines or things like that he would regularly go to uh, an answer of this is something that uh, the special counsel would have more detail on over and over and over again so my thought on that is if you have the evidence why the fuck am I listening to you right now this seems like a, a again a, a stunt where I'm getting half truths from someone who's a, a convicted liar who's yeah. lied to Congress previously, if there is evidence of that, then give me the evidence. I don't want to hear you and your personal inclinations about the president at this point. Give me the evidence. It, it, it's a day's worth of my life that I can't get back now. Give me the fucking report. <laughs> is grumpy. That's where, that's where uh, like, actually good questioning and cross-examination would have been really wonderful. Like, yes. There are questions that I would have loved to have seen people ask and demand that he answer because he's under oath. Sure. He has to answer these questions. Mm -hmm. Well, here's when they did ask, and, and I, I preface this by saying I tried civil cases, not criminal ones. But uh, as, as one who defended those kind of claims, I thought to myself as I watched this, what would be the one thing if I was doing a closing argument I'd come to the jury with? And the answer in this one was that he was asked several different times, did Donald Trump overtly direct you to do any of these things? Mm -hmm. And his answer every time was, no, he spoke in code. Yeah. That only he could understand. That, well, <laughs> uh, that's right. He, he did say that only I could understand because I've known him for more than a decade or something like that. I, I think what I'd be saying, Phil, 
I think you're exactly right that jurors are going to take a hard look at this guy, if, if the American people are the jurors, and, and try and make judgments about the degree to which his story aligns with their understanding of the wider set of facts. They're going to look at these documents and make a judgment about whether or not they connect to the things he's saying. Um, and, and, and there's some portions of that that are really damning. But at the end of the day, I think what I'd pick as my theme is the one thing that would have been absolutely devastating was testimony that Donald Trump directly uh, and unequivocally communicated, you should lie to Congress. Mm -hmm. uh, you should pay off this person to silence her. Um, even Cohen could only say, I was intuiting what he was trying to yeah. say to me. Because he'd say things like, you know, there's nothing bad going on in Russia. And, and that was a signal to Cohen to say, there's nothing bad going on in Russia. Mm -hmm. Now, some people might buy that and some people won't. Uh, but I think a jury, if they were really, if it were a jury, and, and they had a burden of proof to reach, might say, well, for God's sake, are we going to find in favor of yeah. somebody who says they're the only one who can understand the message that was being sent, that it was a tacit message, uh, and, and that there was never a direct communication. Well, maybe that yeah. wouldn't work, but I, I couldn't help but think about it as a, what would I do as a defense attorney in a closing argument? That mm -hmm. would be it. I think you're I think you're right. The, the weird thing for me is that the flip side of that is that that actually is part of the reason why he had some credibility today, because if he were just there to take down Trump or to give, you know, testimony that would help him lower his, uh, you know, his sentencing, there there were a number of things that he could have like uh, the other one I think of, which seemed dumb at the time was the the several people asked him, do you swear under oath that you will never basically try to monetize this through a book deal or a movie deal. And he said, no, he said, no, I'm not going to do that. That's the example of if you're just trying to like, why not just say, yeah, right? Like, like yes, I won't ever do that. Um, well, I think par partly because he was coached and all witnesses are. So let's let's just say that out loud. No witness shows up without some preparation. So uh, uh, people would have said to him, there are going to be places where you're going to have to appear genuine and motivated by some interest other than yourself. And I don't know that these in particular are those, but uh, it makes total sense that you'd say, no, I'm not going to uh, give up the possibility of a book or a movie deal. Uh, everybody expects he's going to do it anyway. So the cost of saying that is minuscule. Uh, I, I think probably people said to him, you're going to have to find some places where people can uh, relate to you. And the average person sitting on their couch says, man, if I could get a million and a half for a book, I'd do it, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Especially if I spent three years <clears> in prison. <throat> Let's assume he serves the whole uh, uh, sentence. So I don't know. I'm, I, I'm with you, Phil. There were places where you said, boy, he could have gone for the juggler and he didn't. But I guess my thinking is he's doing this to a huge audience. And if he doesn't have him by the juggler, he had better not say it and then find out that somebody can rebut his testimony. Mm -hmm. One thing I was thinking about, so he was talking about the Trump Tower deal, uh, in the, the, I'm sorry, the Trump Tower Moscow deal. When he testified and lied in front of Congress, he said that his statement was reviewed by Trump's yeah. lawyers mm -hmm. and approved. Yeah. So I wonder, so is that a, an argument to say that Trump was wink, wink, this is okay? Is, is Trump liable for that if his lawyers review something that, that Trump would know to be false? I mean, I'm wondering about the legal liability on, on an issue like that. I think I'd make the case that your lawyers can't make you culpable for, uh, culpable for a thing that you don't know they have done. Mm -hmm. 
and didn't participate in yourself. Uh, beyond that, I think I'd say that again, lawyers review a lot of things and, and how and, and uh, to what end they reviewed that wasn't made clear to me at least as I listened to that portion of the hearing. They may simply have said, we don't see anything in here that's defamatory. We yeah. don't see anything in here that is overtly inconsistent with our understanding of the facts, so say it. Uh, or they may have said, we want a red pen. Uh, yeah, we don't know. And, and Phil, to your point about some hard cross-examination, this would have been a great place to get some. Sure. Because that is a big deal if he'd been coached in a way that Donald Trump's agents, and, and clearly his lawyers are his agents, uh, were deeply involved in. I don't think it creates culpability, but I, but it is certainly uh, ugly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, it was it was interesting to see today that the members of Congress who are attorneys and how they asked questions mm -hmm. versus the others who were mm -hmm. just you know yahoos. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and it was pretty it was pretty fascinating to see the difference between people who know what they're doing, know how to get at the point that they're trying to get at. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know um, we're over yeah. time, but I want to throw one more thing out and just hear what you think here. Uh, the, the Democrats are famously good at uh, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. <laughs> and uh, we've seen them, uh, yeah. Harry Reid did yeah. it repeatedly, but Just let's just say with respect to judicial nominations. Um, I wonder if the <clears throat> Democrats have thought carefully enough about what impeaching Donald Trump means. And uh, because my view is they may elect Michael Pence if they do that. Uh, he is Trump without the baggage. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he genuinely believes all of the things he says with respect to Trump policy. Uh, but he is as straight and narrow a guy as has ever lived. So assume for the moment you impeach Trump, assume he is convicted, assume he is no longer the president and Pence takes over. Uh, now you've set yourself up to run against somebody who could appeal to the Trump base. Who's mobilized at this point. Mm -hmm. Who's mobilized at this point, who could appeal to that base, but doesn't have to do it without, uh, doesn't have to do it with all of the baggage that comes with it. Yeah. I get the sense that Democrats are aware of that. Uh, there's a lot of conversation about the Clinton impeachment. Yeah. Uh, you know, th th that when that happened, when they impeached Clinton, it blew mm -hmm. back against Republicans. Mm -hmm. I My sense is that Democrats would not do this unless it was something... That was definitive. And yeah. I don't think today is enough. And if they do, it's a terrible mistake. Yeah, I'm uh, wondering if predictit.com had, they must, on uh, what's oh, the share price for impeachment. Oh, oh yeah, Phil's, yeah, yeah. Phil's got a whole bunch of it. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> Phil's going to lose because here's what I think is going to happen. Uh, what they want to do is so tarnish and uh, you throw go, uh, garbage all over this guy that he can't be reelected and not impeach. Mm -hmm. If yeah. I was buying shares on that, I'd go with the they don't impeach. Especially as you get closer and closer. To, I mean, impeachment takes a long time. Yeah. So, right. you're you know, we're we're less than 2 years off from the election. Mm -hmm. Uh yeah, no, this is I I think that's the savvy move. So, and I, I hope I Democrats that, get that. I I think that what you're getting at is the dilemma that the Democratic Party finds themselves in, which yeah. is this debate between do I do the sort of cynical thing that's best to stay in power or do I do the thing that's based on principle, right? And if you do it on principle, it's that Donald Trump has, you know, committed impeachable offense. And Mike Pence, uh, we don't like his views, but it's still you don't leave Donald Trump in office uh, just to avoid Mike Pence um, versus, yeah, the, the sort of um, the thing that 
I don't know. Late, I don't think this has always been the case, but lately it seems like Republicans are are it's a less tough decision. It's about doing the thing to make sure you stay in power because that's how you enact your principles is by by being in power. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's the that's the and I get caught in that too, right? Between like, do I do the thing that's right or do I do the thing that's like uh, you know effective? That one. If Democrats can get some can get some cover, so <laughs> that if, was Nick that said that. <laughs> yeah. Bill and I want to be sure everybody knows <laughs> yes. that. <laughs> if something comes out, whether it's the Mueller report or the Southern District of New York, if something comes out where you can get Republicans on board, which right. was the key for Nixon, mm-hmm. you know, it, it wasn't Democrats. It was when Repo- a handful of Republicans said, "We will support this." Right. That's an entirely different conversation. Absolutely. If they try to do this on a partisan basis, it blows back. It it, it will devastate. Democrats in the presidential but election. I, you have a. Go ahead, Phil. No, go ahead. I'll, I'll make my. Point no, I. Um, just, I mean, you have a significant new wing of the Democratic Party that pretty much campaigned on impeaching him at this point. So you're going to have a reckoning one way or the other, and it's probably not going to end well for Democrats in, this, in that situation. I, I think they've really painted themselves into a corner with this thing. I, it's. I. Uh, I would love to be a fly on the wall of like behind the scenes Republican meetings because, you know, th- there was a unified front today in this testimony. But I, I wonder what's going on behind the scenes. How many yeah. there are Republicans who in the hearing are going to, you know, you know, uh, man the line are going to attack Cohen. But after they're done, go back and say, boy, that was not good. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the question of what's going on again, sort of behind the scenes. And you see a little bit of that, right? And that there were Republicans in the, in the, we're not going to talk about it today, but the, the house vote, um, to go mm-hmm. against the mm-hmm. emergency, I guess, well, yeah. maybe we will National talk about it. Yeah. Um, that, it's a breaking that, you know, news. the Republicans broke from and voted, voted with Democrats and there have been a couple in the Senate as well. So I, I wonder what, you know, behind the scenes is, is happening. If it, maybe there's nothing happening, you know, maybe all Republicans are standing strong, but I, there's there's that that question of, of wavering Republican support. It doesn't have to be all of them, right? It only has to be a handful. Which it was interesting today because I was a bit surprised at the veracity with which Republicans were attacking Cohen. Yeah. Uh, and now he's an easy target, but if I'm a Republican, I'm also a little worried about putting all of my weight behind Trump. I mean, I, I just right. I, I don't feel comfortable that everything is clean there. Uh, and maybe 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 Cohen is so easy that he's such a you know just terrible. Well, I don't know, Billy. I think what they are is institutionalists, <laughs> and they didn't like the idea that confronted as they were with somebody who, at least once, was called a pathological liar, yeah. wasted their time. I, I, what I really think they're doing is to try and make somebody else the villain here. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so if you can if you can turn Cohen into that, you don't necessarily have to support Trump to say you hate Cohen. And in the process, you prevent the Democrats from an easy victory. Because yeah. right? if they don't right. put that defense up, it's easy to, to layer it on on, uh, <clears throat> right. on Cohen and the, the Democrats. Mm-hmm. Do we want to briefly hit North Korea or just... Uh, yeah. I, we yeah, I feel like... I mean, we're going long, but I feel like we should. Yeah. We're going to end the Korean War. Yeah, yeah we right. got to talk about that. Breaking news. So, you know, what was interesting <laughs> about North Korea was that I felt like today was going to be a balanced day. There was going to be Cohen yeah, no. stuff. There was going to be North Korea stuff. And there really wasn't much coverage of North Korea. You know, there was the imagery and the videos of Trump and Kim Jong-un shaking hands and smiling and laughing, which is an interesting thing. But there really wasn't much coverage of that. Almost nothing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And maybe it comes tomorrow. I don't know. The media decide that we're going to parse this out day by day. So the only time that I saw something about North Korea was when they took a break from the Cohen uh, testimony when he went long and CNN didn't know what to do with themselves. And they went for about five minutes and then came back 
and that was about it. Yeah. I'm sorry, Phil, go ahead. No, I think tomorrow. It'll be tomorrow. I think Trump will make it tomorrow, right? The the reaction to to this story is to get it out of the news and make the North Korea summit newsworthy. And I, that's where the interesting question is, does today's, I, this is, you know, I don't who knows, but my question is, does today's testimony affect the way the summit goes? Is there pressure for Donald Trump to come up with some sort of flashy agreement to get this out of the news and to turn attention towards that? And I, and I think... Uh, yeah, maybe. And but the the thing, I mean, the part we should talk about, the the part that has come out is the the potential deal that is being discussed, which is to bring it into the Korean War finally. Um it, it you know, nothing will actually change other than we'll say the war is over uh to reduce level some level of sanctions against North Korea um and to establish sort of a pseudo embassy <laughs> there and here. Uh, in return for North Korea shutting down one of their nuclear plants. Um, and the thing is, like, I think that would be, if they do that, that will be newsworthy. And I think it's not a good deal. Like, you know, North Korea is getting way more than the U.S., but I don't actually have a problem with any of it. If that's the case, if we mm-hmm. start to ease sanctions, develop relations, and uh, end the war, like that, yeah, okay. See, this is what I mean. <laughs> Phil wow. is the voice of reason. Are you okay? <laughs> do you need to lie down? <laughs> I, I, I will say I, I share some of that optimism where I despise uh-huh. how Trump is going about this. I it, it just totally rubs me the wrong way that he is palling around with a totalitarian who, I mean, it's just, Kim Jong-un is a bad, bad guy. Yet it might work. I mean, there's something yeah. about that chemistry where if you can get, we're not, North Korea is not going to denuclearize. That's That's years and years down the road, if ever. But if you can get them to begin the process of pulling back, it might work, and and I I'm not I don't know, maybe I'm not quite as the optimist as you are, Phil, but I don't know I'm I'm stunned by the way I'm angered by how he went about this, but it might it might be effective. I'd like to say I, this was my perspective like nine months ago. I just want I just want to say that I just want to say We've that. Come no. full circle, please continue. I, I had uh, two two thoughts that uh, jumped at me today. The first was I was, and I, I'm not the first one to suggest this. Uh, Reagan walked away at Reykjavik to get a better deal. And, and it took a lot of guts to do it then. And I think the connection to the Cohen hearing is that Trump may be so eager to have something tangible to show for this that he can't walk away from a bad deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I think that's true. And, and, yeah. and that is worrisome. The second is, uh, who thinks that the placement of the Cohen hearing a day before, uh, or at least I should say the document dump a day before, and then the hearing on the day of uh, this summit was an accident? or a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Not me. <laughs> I mean, in other <laughs> words, I, I, there's a possibility that Trump does something mm-hmm. um, radically useful in Vietnam. Uh, there's a good chance he won't, too, of course. Uh, and, and what better way to make sure uh, for all of those candidates lining up to run against him that it gets the least amount of play possible than to queue up a guy who says he's a racist, a con man, mm-hmm. and a criminal on the same day he's trying to do it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's no. I don't think there's any question about that. Yeah, it is about stealing some of the thunder. I, I, either I don't think this was going to be as big as the first summit. No. There was something about those two, you know, for the first time getting together. Mm. And even today, as I was watching some of the the imagery, it, it wasn't quite as shocking as it was the first time. But yeah, no, I, I think the Democrats were certainly playing mm-hmm. playing politics there. I, I mean, <clears throat> but in a, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, please. But but in a way that <clears throat> really matters. So so go back to what. Phil said, if you could just take one nuclear plant offline, 
that really matters. And if we're, uh, forget whether you think Cohn is telling the truth or not, forget whether or not you think Trump is a criminal in this context, to interfere with the possibility that you could make progress in North Korea to make him unelectable or to make somebody else more electable is indefensible. Okay, let me push back a little bit. What <laughs> if the only reason he's doing this is for his own self-grandeur, right? I, I, Vietnam? Uh, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I don't think Trump is deeply committed to solving the North <laughs> Korean issue. I think he sees Why? this... Because the first... Uh, I put in my usual sure, caveat. I'm sure. not a Trump guy, but I'm going to push back on that. Mm -hmm. How do you know that? The first time... So the, the stories have been written. The first time that they went over for this summit, uh, on the plane ride over, the conversation was not about tactics and what was going to come of it. It was the imagery. That's what mm -hmm. Trump was most worried about. How am I going to look? How do we make this look good? How do we make this sell? How do we push the brand? Kind of that framework. Which, which makes me think that he doesn't really care deeply about an agreement, to your point, he cares about saying he did something. Mm -hmm. All right, so so let me concede yeah. all of that. Okay. Let's assume that he couldn't possibly care less yeah. other than a, as to his image. His image is only improved if he gets something tangible. And anything he gets that's tangible is better than any of his predecessors, Republican or Democrats, could say that they've gotten. So to interfere with the possibility, irrespective of how it is or why it is he gets there, that something good happens in Vietnam, I continue to think is indefensible. I don't. So I don't think that's an indisputable fact, though. The idea that anything he gets is better than what people got before, because you can make the argument that North Korea is an atrocious violator of human rights, that mm -hmm. they have, you know, violated international norms, and mm -hmm. that dealing with them and treating them like they've not done anything is actually uh, appalling, right? That this is that that to to after they've treated, after they've had, a, you know, that that in fact. So I think there could be people who want to interfere with this, not because they don't want Donald Trump to succeed, but because they have a real problem with the policy of engaging with a with a country that's a gross violator of human rights that has gone against. So would you do that from the floor of the House or the Senate as opposed to holding a hearing that's a diversion from? I mean, I guess what I'm yeah. after here is uh, th this is why I think many people think American politics is so toxic mm -hmm. that they're walking away from it. Uh, I don't like any of these people. Not one of them. <laughs> I've already suggested the episode title might be Send in the Clowns. <laughs> but if Obama, for those who loathed him, and I think there were people who loathed him as much as those who, who loathed Trump, could really strike a deal with North Korea, <clears throat> how would we feel if, if Republicans called a hearing to make sure no one saw it and that it was harder to do. Mm -hmm. Although I, I wonder whether that really impacts the nature of the negotiation. So I, I, and just I think it does, especially for him. He treats negotiation like he's buying a new car. Mm -hmm. And all of us know when you buy a new car, you gotta get up to you know, make the manager who's behind the little yeah. bullpen come out and They're say, icing him. it's yeah. so nice to meet you, and I'm delighted that uh, you've been into the dealership today. Uh, he has ta we've taken off the table, I think, the ability to walk away. He's got to mm -hmm. come back with that's something mm -hmm. to change yeah. the story. Yeah, that's good. That's a fair point. I, see, yeah, I, this is where I, I'm. I understand your point, but I also think that Trump plays by different rules to some extent. Sure. Because I think Trump could walk away and and would do that and would sell that story, right? That that I have this great relationship with Kim. We huh. were working towards stuff, but he wouldn't give me what I want, and I walked away. And he would totally sell that just as much, and and the, his base would eat that up as much as if he said I struck a deal. And yeah, you could be right. More, I think. Mm. Yeah. It'd be really interesting to see if that's what happened. Yeah, right. I, yeah. I, this is. I think this is his deal, though. I and mean, we've talked about it previously. If he manages to do this, this is. 
This is legacy material. <clears throat> and Phil, you were talking about, you know, North Korea and human rights and, and all that. I, we we make deals with reprehensible countries. We don't make peace, or we only make peace with our enemies. Like it, it's, I think that this is. As much as you think it's it's from not you specifically, but people think it's um, from an optics perspective, and it's it's for show and it's grandeur and, and and all that. This is a slow, methodical, very involved, decades long process to reintegrate this horrific regime back into uh, the the world order and to get that process moving. If you do that, and if you get the the first inkling of that happening. There's no stopping it at that point because it hasn't stopped in any other corner of the planet. And once that process starts, it will be extraordinarily hard to stop. On top of it being a bulwark against the expansion of China from a strategic perspective. Mm -hmm. yeah. There is, I, I mean, I, I, I tend to, uh, to agree with Tom. I, I, I think regardless of what comes out of it, it's still, it's better than nothing. And definitely better than his predecessors, Democrat or Republican, have done for decades at this point. I, I, I think there's a real chance for change. It might not come under him, the, the completeness of it, but this is, again, more progress, quote-unquote, sure. than we've seen in decades. What I will give you is that I think back to the Cold War and the dynamic between Gorbachev and Reagan, that really mattered mm -hmm. in a way where you were suddenly able to do things that if those two didn't have a bond, it wouldn't have. And so I, I do wonder whether that might work out here. As you were talking, I was also thinking about apparently, so Kim Jong-un and Trump are talking, and they were saying how they could trust each other. And Kim Jong-un asked Trump, can you trust me? And Trump said, I can trust me if you could. Something like that. And then John Bolton was next to him. And Kim Jong-un turns to Bolton and says, can you trust me? <laughs> and Bolt, right? Bolton apparently says, if my president says I can trust you, I can trust you. <laughs> you know, which, which makes me think Mike Pence the second. Yes, there are still some skeptics in there. So, well, we, go ahead. We yeah. should finish up with the We Should Talk Beers, yeah. Phil. Yeah. I mean, the breakthrough stuff is, is, uh, you know, is interesting. But in some ways, you could make the argument that the breakthrough that has occurred is that the U.S. has just quit having demands, right? We just now are willing to accept the stuff that was unacceptable in the past. I, I'm kind of curious about 50 years from now, when historians look back on this, how do they interpret it? Because it, it will be interesting to see how much of it is Trump. When you have access to presidential yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, documents and all mm -hmm. that, how much of it is Trump and how much of it is because I, I don't I think that maybe we're not giving enough credit to simply Trump being in the right place at the right time in that hmm. North Korea completed nuclearization. And so all of a sudden, whereas in the years past, it was not in their incentive to cooperate and to you know make amends. They now have their nuclear weapon. They have what they've been going for. So now they can be more amenable to, you know, the West. Yes, we will. We'll, you know, we'll cooperate more. Um, and, and that I so I wonder how much of it, you know, other presidents who are in place at this moment might have had breakthroughs. I don't think they would have had as much of a breakthrough because I think Trump just doesn't really care. Right. He just wants a deal. And so that allows him to sort of move forward, whereas others might have had a harder line. But That's I do think the yeah. timing from the North Korean perspective matters as well. That's good. Yep. Transition that into the beer you're drinking. <laughs> so I'm, Timing's everything. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I'm having um, a Telltale Pale Ale from Mass mm, Landing Brewing it. Company, uh, which is, I meant to look beforehand. I don't know where they are. I think it's New England. Um, and it's, you know, it's a nice. <clears throat> so here, last week you complimented me, Bill, on my ability to give 
detailed, nuanced descriptions. I had a long day. I wasn't feeling very good, and I just wanted a beer. And this is this is a good. It's a beer, right? <laughs> it's a beer. I don't dislike it. It's an IPA. I don't have all sorts of flowery language for it, other than it hit the spot. Phil likey. All right, so Tom brought some of his homebrew today. So why don't you tell us the the beer that you brought and the name of it? Uh, I brought a tropical stout, which I've called Opposites Attract. <laughs> in a day where uh, uh, there are perfect. lots of opposites yes. trying to attract, mm-hmm. uh, this is this is what uh, came to me. So, what's a tropical stout? It's a it's a roasty, foreign uh, uh, export stout with citra hops that should give it a little bit of uh, uh, a citrusy flavor. I have to say, uh, of my own beer, uh, that the hops are overwhelmed by the roast. So. I'm going to save you from being excessively nice about it, since <laughs> because I brought it. But it's all right. It's I'm I'm not altogether displeased with it. I, I enjoyed the I the it. combo of the maltiness and the sort of citra hops. It was you, know, you don't I haven't had a beer like that, so mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. it yep. was, yeah. Um, Our second beer, Nick. You want to read it? Sure. This was a uh, a Kinslager, a Chicago Common. Um, Tom, why is it called Chicago Common? <laughs> <laughs> we talked about this before. These are my friends. Uh, uh, more Oak Park uh, brewers. It is not a common in style. It's a lager, uh, but Chicago common is the kind of brick out of which much of the city is built, and this is an homage to the city of Chicago. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, um, it's a great beer. More yeah, ambery, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah I, I, I liked it a lot. Hold on. Yeah, no, I like this one. Mm-hmm. Um, it's yeah, it's got a bite to it. Uh, it's got that. It, it's still yeah, it's still fairly light. Um, but it hangs with you for a little bit. It, it um, was almost like a Chicago, like, you know, blue-collar amber. We're not messing around. There's going to be some bite to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I like it. Evidence yeah. a lager doesn't have to taste like, uh, yeah. you know, Budweiser mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah, On top of that, I know I brought it up to you guys. If any of you listeners out there can get your hands on that Lucky Charms beer, <laughs> I'm really interested to try it. Apparently, you can only get it in Virginia. Um, I think it's called Saturday Morning, and they actually brew it with marshmallows and toasted cereal marshmallows. I'm sure it's garbage, but I just want to try. Is it supposed T- to TC's totally like in that charm, yeah. uh, category, too. Yeah. It's supposed to taste like Lucky Charms. Phil, it's supposed That's to invoke yeah. Lucky Charms. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely not selling to kids. That's not what they're going for at all. But, yeah, send that, and I'll, I'll thank you for it. I'll even Maybe I'll pay you for it. I, yeah. I haven't decided yet. Anyways, moving on. All right, speed round. So we just got three topics in speed round today because we had some good discussion in the opening round. Um, so we're going to start with uh, we're going to return and look at the legal aspects of Trump's national emergency. So last week we discussed Trump's declaration of a national emergency. But our savvy listeners will have noticed that we intentionally didn't spend much time on the legal aspects. That was because we knew that we had our senior legal analyst on this week's episode to help us think through all those angles. Didn't, didn't have anything to do with the fact that we didn't understand the legal side of it. It was because we knew Tom was coming. <laughs> what? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Tom, wherever one stands on the issue of the border wall, Trump's declaration of a national emergency presents us with some fascinating constitutional questions. So what do you see as the most important legal questions coming forward? The first one uh, is a question I think you all teased out and exactly correctly. That is that uh, the executive power in this area is so ambiguously defined by statute that it would be hard to imagine the court saying the president can't declare this as an emergency. Um, There's about 30 of them that are currently active in America today, national emergencies. Congress is supposed to meet every six months to decide whether to extend those national emergencies 
get ready for a surprise. They have never met since <laughs> 1976, even one time, Jesus. to decide whether to extend national emergency. Um, so uh, is a court likely to say the president doesn't have the power uh, to do this particular thing? I don't think they are, uh, uh, because Congress gave him that power. Second legal thing. This is not a constitutional authority. It's a statutory authority that Congress gave to the president. So the ambiguity is much more easily corrected than by talking about an Article One versus Article Two sort of constitutional debate. If Congress wants to fix the problem, how many times have we said this, they can solve this uh, uh, very, very quickly by going back to the act, clearly defining what a national emergency is. And let me add to that, uh, being clearer about what ancillary powers the president has. Uh, the Brennan Center, uh, named after a former justice, has uh, teased out big details here. And it turns out there's 123 statutes that the 76 Act allows the president to use uh, in the context of a national emergency. So I'll give you an example of what I mean here. This is not just that he can declare an emergency under the 76 Act, it's that he can invoke powers under 123 separate federal statutes that go further. One is the Communications Act. So imagine the possibility the president says, this is clearly not part of the wall, but I just, this is an important one. Um, imagine the president says the internet is the mechanism by which ISIS is recruiting Americans, and that's a national emergency. It is the case under the Communications Act, which is specifically listed as one of those he has powers under, that he could shut the internet down. I mean, I just want to say that the, the, the extent of the power the president has in this area is even more than we thought it was mm -hmm. when we were talking about the breadth of, uh, of the authority. Second big question, can he shift money around the way he has talked about doing? This one, I think, is less clear than the first. Um, I don't think it is clear that he cannot, uh, particularly because the money has been allocated to areas already but, but it seems to me there's two places where these lawsuits might work. One is the money has been shifted inappropriately. The problem is somebody has to have standing to allege that claim. And I've been thinking all day about who has standing, and I've settled on the Marines. That is, it turns out some of this money, and I, mean, I don't mean this frivolously at all, I, well, maybe I shouldn't say the Marines, the, the military. Um, shifting money from military construction budgets that would have benefited uh, the military in a tangible, direct, and uh, relatively quick way, and putting it somewhere else might give standing to the military. I don't know that they would because he's the commander-in-chief, but I could imagine some individual maybe filing this lawsuit to say this reallocation of funds gives me standing because I have been directly injured. Right, because Congress set aside money for them, mm -hmm. right? That's right. And then, yeah. Yeah, to do oh, yeah, right, right, right. reconstruct barracks. I don't know, maybe fix. So they said specifically, it was military housing that yeah. were, that's where the funding was coming from. Yeah, so. it, because, because the twist here, Congress can't say, and the, the courts have, have taken this up. Congress is in a very difficult position when they say they've been hurt. Yeah, mm -hmm. because the, the the tangible harm doesn't accrue to Congress when the president reallocates money. The tangible harm occurs to the person who's uh, the money disappeared yeah. from. So Congress isn't hurt here. I mean, we've seen this, this kind of argument before. But I could imagine uh, members of the military saying, we were the direct beneficiaries of congressional spending. The president has reallocated money in ways that we can no longer 
benefit from. Uh, and we would like a review of whether or not Congress, the owner of the purse strings, uh, has been diminished in its power when the president took the money away. That's an mm -hmm. interesting angle because I was thinking more of the first side where I felt like Trump's got a lot of leverage. That that feels to me like there might be some pushback potential. Mm -hmm. If even though Congress passed this statute giving him the right to declare emergencies, and could that could that still? So I mean, it's a weird thing to think about in my mind. Um, Congress says you can take this power from me. Could that be ruled unconstitutional? That Congress doesn't have the power to give up their own constitutionally granted powers? Does that's that make a, sense? That's a, oh, I mm. love that question. Um, Congress can't delegate its powers uh, to administrative agencies, but the question would be, and I'm, I'm not aware of any decision where the court's taken up the question of delegating powers to another branch of government in this kind of way. Yeah. It's, boy, I'm headed to Lexus tomorrow. <laughs> I, 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 that's, I love that question. Uh, so uh, a question that Phil's I Phil's got, got a little lawyer in him is what it turns out <laughs> is true here. So uh, another aspect of this that doesn't seem to be getting a, a lot of coverage is that uh, the allocated funds allocated by Congress, uh, according to the administration, would only be used after the funds that the administration has already received and that they were uh, able to raise prior to this were exhausted. Does that give them any leverage in the sense that there is no specific timetable or an understanding of the specific things that would be um, uh, uh, reallocated? Um, would that give them any more leeway in That's this? An it's another great point. And I, I can't help but notice here that there's only two kinds of people on earth, those who went to law school and those who wish they did. And now I've seen two of you clearly t uh, trending towards that latter category. Phil and Nick wish they went. Hmm. You don't have an injury that produces uh, standing until you are actually injured. Mm -hmm. So one can't say, I can see it coming. I'm not going to get those barracks repaired in the way that I wish I would. But I'm hurt now, yeah. even though it would not have been fixed until later. Or potentially never. Yeah. So, or potentially never. So maybe the standing for the military falls apart. You might, uh, the, the third point I thought I'd make on this as a matter of law is you, you might notice that all of the lawsuits that have been filed, and there have been a bunch of them, uh, take up ancillary issues, uh, which is to say this is going to harm the environment or this is a seizure of property inconsistent with the Fifth Amendment. Indeed, the National Butterfly Association, I pause here uh, to wipe a tear from my eye, uh, it turns out that butterflies may not find their way across the wall either, mm -hmm. uh, and they have Stupid filed a suit. But, here, but, but what I'm after is these are people that may have standing. I, I'm I have doubts about whether the Butterfly Association is standing on behalf of all those monarch butterflies trying to make their way wherever they go. But uh, taking property, harming the environment, changing the direction of navigable waters or something like that, these things do produce standing. And the first piece of wall that gets into a position where it does that uh, gets standing. I know we, the bell rang, yeah. so I'll just say one last thing. I suspect what they're going to ask for is an injunction. That is to say, you can stop a harm that is inevitable by asking a judge to enjoin the conduct. Uh, you know, I think here even as bad, this was what the Pentagon Papers was about, right? Yeah. Do we enjoin yeah. them mm -hmm. from publishing? Uh, so I could imagine somebody saying, stop the, the wall construction before my property is seized. Stop the wall construction before navigable waters are changed. 
stop the construction before the monarchs get lost. Mm. Well, that's a perfect. That's Poor a perfect snowflake ending. butterflies. <laughs> can I? Can I? I know that you're trying to wrap it up, Bill. But can I ask one more question, real quick? We got to get on? to your topic. I, <laughs> I know. Uh, so my my last question, Tom, and I don't know. I, I, I don't know what the answer is to this. Um, uh, so Congress, yesterday, today, yesterday, the House passed yes. this resolution right. mm-hmm. um, opposing you know the this um, emergency declaration with Republican support. There were mm-hmm. you know enough not a huge number, but I don't know twenty Republicans or something. Uh, now it goes to the Senate, and I saw one report that they're one vote away from having enough senators. So there's three Republicans who are on board. One more gets rep- uh, um, Senate support it would be vetoed, right? Mm-hmm. So at this point, mm-hmm. if it goes to the president, it would be vetoed. Would that, though, affect, if, if essentially the oh. idea is Congress gives emergency powers to the president, um, the president seizes this emergency power, Congress, both houses, pass a resolution saying we oppose this, but the president vetoes it. Does that have an impact on the way the court would consider it? Would the court see that as the president has the power to veto or would the court see that as a majority of Congress has come out against this or would it be irrelevant? I don't think it's irrelevant, but I think one of the themes we've seen in the courts recently is, and and it's an altogether positive one is they don't overreach. And uh, I think they would work here on the narrow statutory language in the 76 act to say, here is what Congress has delegated to the president. And again, I love the question about delegation to the president of congressional duties. Um, I'd be very surprised if they said, we want to think about the broad cultural question of vetoing this, where that's his constitutional authority. I I could be wrong about that, but, but it feels to me like the courts in some ways, especially the Supreme Court, have been even more judicious than they ordinarily are. Uh, as they watch the other two branches self-destruct. So they've been very narrow in their rulings. And the Tim. statute, ha- the, the statute has a, a, a way to, for Congress to stop an emergency <laughs> declaration, right? That, that seems like that would lead the court. Uh, well, it has two. Uh, yeah. the, the first is the veto, uh, well, to the normal political process. The second is meet every six months and vote to end the, uh, now I think the president can still veto that. But they haven't even done the second. They could choose to do that. Yeah. But we'll they're very busy. So. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. You got to bring Cohen back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, obviously. Right. <laughs> Ooh, this is good. All right. So this, this next one is a fill topic, and I love it. So last Friday, a federal judge ruled that requiring only men to register for the draft is unconstitutional. The Military Service Act requires that men between the ages of 18 and 25 must register in case the country needs a military draft. However, women face no such requirement. A critical aspect to this case is that in 2013, the Department of Defense formally lifted the ban on women in combat, and in 2015, lifted the all-gender-based restrictions, all-gender-based restrictions. Uh, as a result, these changes, the judge concluded that the male-only provision of the Military Service Act now violates the equal protection provision of the U.S. Constitution. The case was brought by an organization called the National Coalition for Men a group dedicated to raising awareness of discrimination against men. Uh, Phil, when we were talking about this earlier in the week, you noted that this group may be a bunch of assholes, but they're not necessarily <laughs> wrong. <laughs> Tom, what's what's your reaction to this case? What, what should we make of it? We're going down. We're taking you with us. All, all, yes. that, all that fluffy love that I just threw at Phil about that last question, <laughs> yes. we're taking it back on this one. <laughs> I, I, 
I was just in San Diego. Uh, this is a brief diversion to make a point. UCSD, which has the Scripps Oceanographic mm -hmm. Institution, one of the leading uh, things of its type in the world, had a conference uh, where, for the first day, only women could register, attend, present, or participate. It violated all of their internal rules about gender discrimination. And uh, as I thought about this, I, I think, absolutely clear and easy decision uh, for the judge, I thought about that, and I thought about what John Roberts said in one of the affirmative action cases, which was, this one involved race, not gender. Uh, if you'd like to stop racial discrimination, the best way to do it is to stop racially discriminating. Uh, what happened here is a very straightforward application of, and this is where Phil's going to have so much trouble because it's going to be his hero that did it to him. <laughs> Ruth Bader Ginsburg decided the VMI case 23 years ago, and that's what walked us directly to this case. That is, if you take down uh, the structural rules against women being in this role, you can't anymore unduly burden men with you can't get a college loan, you probably can't go to college uh, if you don't register for the draft. So I, I have several other things I'd say, but I guess I'll just throw that out there. Here's, here's one, though, uh, to add. This does not mean women are in combat. And I know, Phil, you're not saying that. I, no one in this panel. But I've, 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 just, I've read all sorts of commentary about this. Now we're sending our daughters to die in Afghanistan or something like that. Well, first of all, there's not a draft. Second of all, nothing about this ruling obligates the military to put women in combat. What it says is you're going to have to register for the selective services. And if you don't, you're in the same position men are. They can't get a college loan that's guaranteed by the government and that sort of thing. So I, 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 I dial back a little bit the if I'm talking to the general public, that we hate this whole thing, and I don't know. I've never sworn on the podcast, so maybe I'll just say those a-holes. Do it. <laughs> I got really close on Cone. I'm telling you, man, Cone almost brought it out of me. But you said you talk about this in your one of your classes, all the ethics of war class, all the time. So well, in, in yeah. my intro, in my in my global politics class, when we go through the big theories of international relations and we talk about feminism, we talk about the idea of you know uh, the sort of a little bit older notion of difference feminism that men and women are yeah. fundamentally different and that you know all the the kind of perceptions of international politics and war and all of that is because it's male dominated but then we get into this newer more recent form of feminism which is arguing that men and women are not fundamentally different right and the problem is representation right if men and women are not fundamentally different then it's a problem that only 25 of 193 countries have female leaders and that women are excluded from all these roles or whatever and it's fun to walk students down that that path and normally they they're they agree right women should be allowed in combat roles if they can meet the standards of you know the physical expectations in terms of like if you can do the work then it's not your your sex or your gender. If you're excluding people just because of their sex or gender, that's a problem. But then you take that next step, which is if, if that's the case, then women should be subject to the draft as well. And, and it, it's interesting to see how quickly a number of people sort of balk at that, right? And even go back on the thing that they've been arguing. The number of times I've had students who were strongly arguing for men and women are, are equally strong and then the, the the draft gets thrown out and suddenly they're arguing that but women need to be home nurturing their children or whatever. you can't do that you can't do that i think I this, inter this is an interesting point because i think it, it's one of those issues that i i don't know but it seems like you've got 
the the people who are men's rights people are coming at it from one very sort of you know they're coming at it from one angle but I, I think that like uh, you know really strong feminism would come around to this same conclusion right that that men exactly. and women shouldn't mm, yeah. be treated yeah. differently that that women are equally capable that they are they have access to combat roles and if that's the case then they should also be subject to the the draft mm-hmm. I, I don't know I thought it was but, interesting and the opinion doesn't even say they're equally capable. Uh, maybe they are in in some contexts, but uh, all the opinion says is for the purpose of the selective services, if there are no barriers based on gender to entry to the military, there ought not to be any barriers or burdens placed on men that aren't placed on women relative to registration for selective services. Mm-hmm. I, I understand that some people might be frustrated with the motivations of the group, right? Mm-hmm. But but I think they're asking not an inappropriate legal question. Let's tease out how we do these things going forward and it feels to me like that i listen my only child that is still of draft age assuming there ever will be one and i think there won't is is my daughter uh do i think she's as capable as my two sons uh, those three no uh do i think there are women who are capable in fact one of the things the judges or the judge went out of his way to say is there might be things that women are better at than men yeah. and to suggest in the selective services draft that we're not bringing them in is just simply wrong mm-hmm I was curious about, I, so I didn't, I just came across the story because it's something that I, I think is fun to talk about in class. You you feel like this is a strong case, this will stick? Do you think this is, I, I don't know anything about the court that it's coming out of or what the legal mm-hmm. argument was mm-hmm. behind it, but. Yeah, first of all, it's a very narrow ruling. So this is not something that uh, uh, compels the government tomorrow to change the process. And in fact, I think what the judge did was to queue it up for appellate review. All of the precedent is on the side of this decision, starting with Ginsburg in uh, uh, the VMI case and moving forward. And I think it's pretty straightforward, intermediate scrutiny, uh, scrutiny constitutional law. Does this separation substantially advance a government interest? No. Well, no. I'm just glad that we four white men got to decide <laughs> that. Hey, man, bring them on. Five, if you include the judge. That's right. <laughs> All right, our final topic today. So the citizenship rights of ISIS wives. So as the campaign against ISIS advances, an interesting legal question has emerged. What to do with the women who have left the U.S. to join ISIS but now want to return? A case getting some attention is that of Hoda Muthana, an Alabama native who in 2014 traveled to Syria to marry an Islamic State fighter. She escaped in December and now would like to return to the U.S. and says she is prepared to face the legal consequences of her actions. Yet last week, President Trump announced that he had instructed Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, to, quote, not allow Hoda back into the country. Pompeo has since stated that she is not a U.S. citizen and will not be admitted into the United States. While Marthana was born in the United States, the government maintains that she never became an American citizen. Pompeo claims she stands outside of the 14th Amendment guarantee of birthright citizenship because her father, who is now a naturalized citizen, was formerly a Yemeni diplomat under the jurisdiction of his home country. Um, Marthana's lawyers note that her father had been discharged from his diplomatic position by the time of her birth in October of 1994. This case raises all sorts of important legal questions about citizenship rights, as well as the category of stateless individuals. Tom, I'm dying to know what you think of this case, because this one, this one was for me, one that I was really, really interested in. She's going to win. Okay, good. All right, we can move on. <laughs> Let me start with that. Uh, Why? The facts are... Uh, if the narrow approach taken here is that her father's 
status as a diplomat was insufficiently clear. Uh, I, theoretically, she could lose. But we issued her a passport. And the strongest piece of evidence in this case is going to be the State Department made a judgment that she was enough of a citizen to get a passport, read here, like all the four of us sitting around this table. Yeah. So it's impossible for me to imagine that a judge is going to say, well, the State Department issued a passport, and I should undo that based on what is very uh, tenuous argument about the termination of the diplomatic status of her father. I think the really interesting legal question here is, could we, let's assume for the moment she is a citizen, keep her out? Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think the answer is that we cannot. Uh, the Supreme Court hasn't ruled on a case exactly like this one, but they have repeatedly said that citizenship is not a thing that we can use as punishment. That is, you can't take it away uh, to punish a person. Um, it has to be a voluntary cooperative agreement where you renounce it, uh, essentially. So I, I have to say, I just, I, I can't see grounds on which Trump and uh, Pompeo can win this case. Either in the court of public opinion, frankly, or uh, in court. I mean, there are plenty of CIA black sites that we can keep her in over there. I mean, I don't see why this is so complicated. He said in jest. <laughs> the renouncing thing is interesting because I, there's, mm -hmm. that's part of the argument. Because there, she's not the only one. There are others who their citizenship is not in dispute. But yeah. part of the ISIS thing is when you got there, you burned your passport and all of that. Uh -huh. and, and the argument has been that that's them renouncing their citizenship. But that's not, you know, historically renouncing your citizenship means you go into an embassy and you renounce your citizenship when you become the citizen of another right. place. Mm -hmm. right. If I go out in my front yard and burn my passport that doesn't and say I'm not a U.S. citizen, that doesn't have any legal binding and that that's the that's my impression at least which is the the, the i don't thing. think it does and i'm not aware that she ever and i know you're not saying she did even said that yeah. she didn't stand on an instagram or a sure. you know a snapchat or a, a youtube <laughs> whatever whatever you whatever you youngsters do uh, and say i renounce my citizenship i'm burning my uh passport uh period she didn't do that uh, she's gonna win well, the yeah. other interesting thing, so <laughs> she's going to win. To think about, you know, Phil, from the comparative perspective, I mean, so international law is also on her side as well. After World War II, there were there these major efforts at the international level to say stripping citizenship from individuals is inappropriate, thinking about what happened to the Jews in Germany. Mm -hmm. And so there's the U.S. cases, but there's also the case in the U.K. where the U.K. is not disputing the citizenship, but saying, nevertheless, we're still pulling that sure. away. Mm -hmm. But they have laws that let them do yes. this. They're profoundly different. Uh, it, it's, it's a really interesting dynamic. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I don't know. This, this is this sort of fascinating. And I, yeah. I think that the individuals, I'm not saying she should come back and be let to go free. She should no, come back and face absolutely. Yes. all of the federal laws and international laws against terrorism. And but then be put away Right, forever. but that's that's her right, yeah. This is the part that I don't get. So beyond the legal standpoint, I don't really get... There's a, there's a practical argument to be had here. She's gone off. She's joined ISIS. She says she wants to come back, and she's willing to face her. I, I, don't, I don't understand. It seems like you're digging into principle to say you can't come back. It seems like the U.S. has an interest to say yes, come back we want to interrogate you we want as much intelligence as we can get yeah. we will yep. punish you right we'll, we'll yeah. prosecute you for treason or whatever we want to tr prosecute you for but you can hang out with cold for a little while right. <laughs> but this is a this is a, like a it, it seems like to probably a bunch the of them she could hang out with for <laughs> yeah. a while right he's not the only one going to jail huh? <laughs> yes the principle of you didn't you were mean to the u.s and you renounced it so you don't yeah. get to come back seems very short-sighted in my mind i don't i don't understand why we wouldn't 
welcome her back, right? And then put her in prison. Yeah. But but take whatever intelligence and information we can get from her while she's in prison. Well, that, that, right. I, I mean, that, that's just weird to me. Yeah, I think it would speak to the strength of American institutions and the legal system more than anything. Throw I norms, had to do it. Throw I norms, had Nick. to do it just to get <laughs> a reaction out of it. Why not induce the voluntary provision of all of that intelligence by not spiting her? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Come back. Yep. And go on trial and even negotiate for uh, uh, lenient treatment on the basis of your cooperation to make a Cohen connection, yeah. yep. a, a rule 35 yeah. sort yes. of thing, right? Uh, so what we've done is to fight a battle we can't lose, uh, I'm sorry, can't win, uh, in order to accomplish nothing there's, uh, and make less likely yeah. Phil's uh, outcome, not more. It makes me think of there's this really fascinating case of the, the Al-Qaeda guy who came back to the United States, pled guilty, and has been giving all sorts of information to the U.S. government, and then wanted to go into protective services, Mm -hmm. and the U.S. government said no, right? The judge and all these people are arguing, are you kidding me? Like, this is a guy who came back, served his time, we should give, because Al-Qaeda still wants him. It's it's really, I don't know, this is, yeah. It's spite. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think for Trump, there's there's political spite and dynamics there as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, this was fun. Oh. Just getting uh, loosened spicy. up. Spicy. <laughs> that was exhausting, but very good. Um, is that a thing that's going? That's a timer that's going. Um, yeah. Well, thanks, guys. That yeah. was that. Yeah, like you said, that was really good. Uh, was Tom, fun. thanks as always for joining us. Thank you as always. It was um, great. Yeah. If you guys like the discussions that we have, I can't imagine that you wouldn't, because otherwise you'd be communists or terrorists who were going to take your citizenship <laughs> away. Um, <laughs> Follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, beers that we try. Uh, check us out on Untapped on iOS or Android. Uh, look for Barstool Politics. Uh, the podcast, iTunes, uh, iTunes SoundCloud, uh, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, and then Predict It. Uh, if you were here at the start of the podcast, we are partnered with Predict It, which is a uh, real money political prediction market, pretty much a stock market for politics where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Barso Politics listeners, if you open up a new account, you'll receive up to a $20 match on your first deposit. So open up a $20 account. Predicted will match that $20. Um, just use our promo link, predicted.org slash promo slash barstoolpaul20, uh, and you'll get $40 used on Predicted. So definitely check that out. Anything else, guys? This was fun. It was fun. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Tom. So much breaking news. Yeah, yes, thanks again, Tom. Phil, Bill, anything else? Good? Good. Good. Cheers. Cheers. Yeah. Bye. Shut up and sit down.